Listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I'm the host of this program. There are many versions of the English Bible. Starting with the King James Version, we also have the New International Version. New American Standard Bible, English Standard Version, American Standard Bible, and many more. We have various versions of the Bible in which we can choose from to read. But even just five to six hundred years ago, this wasn't the case. As Martin Luther initiated the Protestant Reformation, during the 1500s in Europe, there was only one version of the Bible that people could not understand, which was written in Latin. In order to read the Bible, People first had to learn to read Latin. Then doesn't this make us wonder who first wrote the first English Bible, and who the first person to translate it was? We'll come back to share more after our first song. Nothing good in me. You are love. You are love on display for all to see. You are light. You are light when the darkness closes in. You are hope. You are hope. You have covered all my sin. Yeah. You are peace. You are peace. My fear is crippling. You are true. You are true. Even in my wandering, you are joy. You are joy. You're the reason that I sing. You are life. You are life. In you, death has lost its sting. And oh, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love. Will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world, forever reign. You are more, you are more than my words will ever say. You are Lord, you are Lord. All creation will proclaim.
Someone who was a great advocate of the Protestant Reformation even before Martin Luther initiated it in the 16th century. And this person was John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was born in 1329 in Yorkshire, England. He was always deeply interested and read the Bible very consistently, and at the age of 19, he met and experienced the Holy Spirit and realized the message the Spirit was trying to relay to him. Through the Bible, he not only deciphered what God's plan for salvation was, he was able to truly realize Jesus Christ was the only way of salvation. He then decides he was going to spread this great news and makes the decision of devoting his life for Christ. At the time, Europe was heavily influenced by Christianity. Politics, the economy, society, education, and many other aspects were all directly and indirectly touched by the influence of Christianity. But going into the 14th century, Christianity began to grow further away from God. There were many appointed Christian leaders who began to research and read the Bible, but not for the sake of spreading the word, but because they were interested in administering events such as weddings and baptisms. In the meantime, the Catholic Pope claimed that he was the head of the church and the representative of Christ and claimed many false testimonies. There were many priests who put great weight into expanding the power of the church rather than teaching the gospel. And as a result, the church became very wealthy and held a lot of power. The church held almost a third of all of England's estate, and the earnings and revenues of the church were almost two to three times more than of the whole country. Can you imagine how corrupt things were? Before anyone knew it, Christianity became corrupt and there was nothing to discern it from the ways of the world. During this time, John Wycliffe voiced his opinion and rebuked the church and the priests and clergymen for not displaying and spreading God's word as it should be. Wycliffe's biblical teachings introduced an unprecedented challenge for the church that had been corrupt and secularized. He revealed and criticized unbiblical teachings that the church imposed on the people, such as transubstantiation, which is a teaching that the bread and wine offered in the celebration of the sacrament of the Eucharist become in reality the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and also indulgentia, a teaching that your sin can be pardoned via monetary compensation. Also, the Catholic Church's doctrine of purgatory, veneration of Virgin Mary, and worship before statues 
were all rejected. The role of priests was not to mediate the relationship between God and humans, but to proclaim the words of the Bible. Wycliffe denounced papacy and stated, Christ alone is the head of the church, and also stated that the Pope was Antichrist, who is classified as people who do not follow the teachings of Christ. He argued the Pope's words are not to be trusted unless one can find its roots in the Bible, criticizing the secularization of the authority of the Pope, bargain of clergy positions, the tyranny of the Pope, and the abuse of the power by the Church. John Wycliffe was confident that all believers should read the Bible, and thought of ways for everyone to be able to do it, and led to the idea of translating it into English. However, other than the Latin Bible, all other translations of the Bible were strictly prohibited by the Catholic Church, and for anyone who translated the Bible were to face severe consequences. Knowing this, Wycliffe still continued to risk everything he had and continues to translate as intended. Therefore, the English Bible published in 1382 was the Bible translated by John Wycliffe. Finding myself at a loss for words And the funny thing is, it's okay The last thing I need is to be heard But to hear what you would say Word of God speak you pour down like rain Washing my eyes to see Your majesty To be still and know That you're in this place Please let me stay and rest In your holiness Word of God speak Finding myself in the midst of you Beyond the music, beyond the noise All that I need is to be with you And in the quiet, hear your voice
finding myself at a loss for words and the funny thing is it's okay Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is Humility, Part 2, based on the scriptures of Numbers chapter 12. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. The other thing when I say fear leadership, I mean literally have some reverence for the people that are in those positions. Because they're in the positions because God placed them there. So whether you agree or you think you're wiser, you have better ideas, or you think, well, God speaks through me also, you know what, just be careful, because God placed them in these positions. The Bible says in Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And this is referring to more than just the elders of the church. This is talking about governing authorities. Like, I am supposed to respect whoever is the mayor, the governor, the president. Not because I necessarily think that, uh, that they're these perfect people and that they're godly people or they're making all the right decisions. But, but the fact is, is they're there and God is using them in that position. And so my job is to respect them, to submit myself to them and understand, you know what, God placed them there. You see, we, we live in America and America is all about free speech, right? And so people flaunt that all the time. And with that free speech, you know what, I'm going to bash every president and talk about what he's doing wrong and how I have such better ideas. You know, that's Miriam and Aaron. It's like, why is he president? I know more than him. I could figure this out. I could figure that out. And I'm just saying, don't go down that road. Don't don't just start talking like everyone else talks. And I, I'll confess, there have been times in my past when I haven't taken these passages seriously enough, and I've said some negative things about other officials. And 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 it's like, you know what? I got to stop that. God placed them there, and I need to revere them. The best example, best example I think in Scripture is David. You remember the story of David and Saul. Saul was being a jerk. He just was being evil. He was trying to kill David. David did nothing wrong. Here Saul is, but he was the king. And he was doing everything wrong. And he was even out hunting down David, trying to kill him. Because he was jealous. Because David was doing such wonderful things that people were following him. And so out of jealousy and out of rage, Saul's hunting down David. While David and his men are hiding in a cave. When guess who walks in to relieve himself? Saul comes in to use the cave as his restroom. And so talk about being vulnerable. He's right there. David's right behind him. Saul has no clue. David's right there. And David's men are like... Look at that. The Lord just delivered you. You know, look, he just brought him right to you. Go ahead, do what you need to do. And does David strike down Saul? No. But what does he say? He, he says, First uh, Samuel 24, 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. 
or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He says, look, I'm not saying he's doing everything right, but I'm not going to dare lay hand on him. I'm not going to dare go against him because God placed him in that position. He's the Lord's anointed. Isn't that amazing? You compare David to Aaron, who's like, okay, yeah, stupid Cushite wife. You know, he just... He just would just go with the flow. You know what? You're going to gossip about him. I'll gossip him. What are you, though? Who do you more resemble? The one that just, you know what? Everyone's talking negatively about this person. I'll join in. I won't say a thing. I'll just kind of go with the flow. Or are you the person like David who says, well, hold on, you guys. I'll have no part of this. That's the Lord's anointed. That's the last person. I, I Look, i got a fear of God. I'm not going to speak negatively about that person because God put him in that position. He's going to use him for some reason. And so you're not going to catch me. Talking behind his back. So, so you know, it's this issue of leadership. And, and I, I, like when I, when I go other places, when I, I mean like other countries and stuff, there's such a respect for the pastor, right? You know, for church leadership. And even in some cultures here, like, like even at 1130, if I go into the Spanish speaking service, you know, they, they just don't dare call you Francis. Ah, pastor, pastor, you know, and, you know, in Africa it's pasta, man of God, you know, and it's just always, and, and I've always been like, ah, you know, don't call me that. That's just weird. I'm, just call me Francis. And, and all of our pastors, you know, we, we really want to push that of, you guys don't be all high and mighty on this pedestal. You're just another person. You're just another person. Um, and I believe that's the attitude a pastor should have. At the same time, it's kind of really weird for me to say it, but there is there does need to be a sense in which there is a truth that God has put me as a leader of this church, and that's a pretty crazy position. I'm I revere it, and uh, and it would do you well to revere it as well. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And again, please understand my heart. And that that's, that was so awkward to say. Because I, I know who I am, and I know my issues, and it's not that I'm this great person by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that God has always had this sense of order with the way that he does things. And says, you know what, I put them in that position, and so respect it, not because of him, but because of me. Because I'm God, and I put him there. And so that's what I was trying to say with the elders. That's what I'm saying about Moses and uh, and Miriam and Aaron didn't respect that. David did. The other thing, and let's just move past that. Okay, now let's, let's, it's the other thing that I learned from this is is the humility of, of Moses. You guys, the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, right? He opposes the proud. Who's he going to lift up? He's going to lift up the humble person. I teach the sermon prep class over at the college, and one of my students preached this passage a couple of weeks ago, and he did such a great job. He's the one that got me thinking about this, because he talked about humility. It was his second message on humility. His first time he preached, he preached about humility, he talked about how God gives grace to the humble, um, but he opposes the proud, and he made the comment. He goes, it's kind of weird, but sometimes I want to be humble so then I can be great, you know, which makes sense. And, and that's OK, because greatness and humility can go together. And the Bible even explains it that way. He goes, look, I'll lift you up in due time. And, and he says that because it's a motivation to be humble. I want to be lifted up by God. He says, but there's a greater reward for humility based upon this passage. He said this. 
He goes, the greatest reward for humility is intimacy with God. I just sat there and dwelt on that. See, God had this intimate relationship with Moses. God looked at Moses like no one else on the earth. God just adored Moses. He goes, man, you understand, I talk to him. He's a human being, and we talk. I let him see my form. We, it's not like a proper anyone else. I mean, this is Moses. You don't talk about Moses. I love Moses. Now, why was he so intimate with this one man? Was it coincidence that he was the most humble man on the planet? Absolutely not. You guys, I just love the phrase that that kid said. He says, you know, that's the greatest reward for humility is intimacy with God. How badly do you want intimacy with God? Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 says this. I I love this verse. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isn't that amazing? Like God goes, here here I am, the high exalted one, right? We've talked about God, the immortal one who alone, you know, alone is immortal. Here is God, and he says, look, I dwell in heaven, a high, lofty place, a place you don't even get. He goes, but I also dwell, I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. See, that's that's why we need to hunger for humility. Yes, absolutely, because he'll, he'll raise us up. And it's better than being opposed by God. But here's the main reason is, man, don't you want God to live with you? Don't you want him to just make his dwelling with you? Don't you just want that intimacy with God like Moses? I mean, if you have that type of relationship with God... Where he's the one that's looking out for you. He's the one that listens when, when people gossip about you. He's the one that protects you and is going to lift you up. What else could you have on this earth? That type of intimacy with God, and it comes from humility. And that's why I go, you know what, Lord? It's hard to pray for humility because you just go, what is going to happen to me? But you go, you know what, God? I want that type of intimacy with you. And I, and I got to say this before we close. Make sure you know what humility is. Because I think most people have a false understanding, a misunderstanding of what humility is. Humility is not self-pity. Okay? And sometimes we get this mixed up. When someone goes, oh, man, yeah, my, my life's terrible. Everything's so bad. We go, oh, you're so lowly and humble. No, you're depressed. You know, and, and the truth is, the truth is, is some depressed people are the most arrogant people on the planet because they're always thinking about themselves. It's always about me. Look at me. Look at all my problems. Look at this. Look at that. Look at how awful I have it. They're always thinking about themselves. That's going to lead any of us to depression. But that's not humility. In fact, it's not self-pity. And humility also is not self-degradation. It's not putting yourself down. I got this one wrong in the past. You know, when people go, yeah, I I don't really do that well. I really don't do anything well. I'm just kind of a loser. You go, oh, don't be so humble. That's not humble. First of all, that's a sin because who made you? God. You're saying God screwed. You're offensive to God when you put yourself down. 
in that sense. Like, you messed up. You, you know, because remember when Moses even tried that? He goes, oh, I, I don't speak real well. And God says, who made your mouth? How dare you say that? Who made your mouth? And you're telling me it's not good enough to do what I've called you to do? God was angry with that. In the same way, so understand it's not this. See, I, I got this wrong. I used to, when I used to think, okay, I'm, I'm too proud. I got to pursue humility. And so I thought that I was being humble by walking around going, I'm not a very good teacher. Yes, that's not humility. That's lying. There's things I do well. There's things I don't do well. But humility isn't pretending you can't do anything right. Okay, because here, let me point this out to you. Okay, this is, this is going to blow some of your minds. Think about this. Who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses. So who wrote Numbers chapter 12, verse 3? Moses was the most humble man on the earth. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? I, I never thought about that till this week. And I was thinking, wow. <laughs> I mean, what if I walked up here and said, you guys, I think I'm the most humble person in America. You would say, you just proved that you weren't. You know, it's just this. And, and yet the truth is, is, see, it's because we don't understand humility. You know, Moses, and I, I picture Moses maybe even, you know, because this is inspired by God, you know, and I believe God led Moses to write these things. And, and maybe it was that Moses was like, should I really write this? Um, but I, I really believe there's more than that. I think, I think Moses was just going, you know what, this is what God says and this is who I am. What am I going to do, say that I'm not? See, because here's the point. The reason why humility is not self-pity and it's not self-degradation is both of those phrases have the word self in it. Humility is just not thinking about self. It's not saying, I'm so great, or I'm so lousy, or, you know, whatever, I'm so happy, or I'm so depressed. It's just not thinking about me that much. It's just like, you know, it's me saying, okay, yeah, yeah, I am a good teacher, but, you know, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. What's going on in your life? That's humility. Humility is just not thinking about yourself that much, good or bad. It's said perfectly in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. See, that's humility. That's humility is, is going, you know what? Why am I thinking about myself? Forget my needs. I, I'm, you're, you're more important than I am. That's humility. In humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Understand that's what we're pursuing as a church. That's all the stuff we're going after is, is to lift up other people and the needs around the world. That's the whole idea of the outdoor amphitheater. I mean, you understand, do you get the concept yet? The whole idea is we're going, you know what? It's more important that they eat than it is for me to sit in an air-conditioned room. You know what? It's more important that that person has a house than that, you know, that I'm in a, a place that's, that's, that's warmer in the winter. You know, and if we could somehow just reflect Christ that way, because that whole Philippians passage is about Jesus. Their attitude should be like Jesus, who didn't say, you know what? He says, you know what? I, I'm thinking about these people on the earth, and they're going to go to hell. They can't help themselves. And so, you know what? I'll leave the luxuries of heaven and go down there. See, that's humility, that he humbled himself. He made himself nothing. That's the idea of what we're doing as a church. That's why we're giving away all this money. You know what? It's, it's more important that these missionaries are taken care of than it is for us to have any more luxuries here at Cornerstone Church. We, we've got plenty. You know what? They're more important. I mean, what if we really live that way, you guys? You walk in the room and you don't think about yourself. 
experiment this week. I've been experimenting. I, I was trying to figure out, okay, how long can I go without thinking about myself? And I literally timed myself to just, you know, because why fill my mind with thoughts of Francis when I can fill my mind with thoughts of God? Okay, I'm just not worth thinking about. And so how long can I just think just about God and other people and not have it gravitate back to me? One time I made it just under two minutes. It's crazy. We're so conditioned to thinking about ourselves. And humility is thinking about others. I love worship because worship gets you focused on God and who he is. And nothing will humble you quicker. So you don't really need to worry about thinking less of yourself. Just think about God. And the humility will all automatically come. The more you dwell on him, the more humble you'll be. Some of you, you're going, man, you talk about Moses being so close to God, I don't even have a relationship with God. If that's you today and you go, you know what, I can't even think about being the most humble or the closest to God. I just want to know God. I want to have a relationship with him. Let's just humble ourselves in the presence of God.
You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. There are people who gave up their lives in honor of Christ who gave us our everlasting life. Continued is a story of the many people who endured their life with faith, titled The Voice of the Martyrs. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with The Voice of the Martyrs. When you hear the word martyrdom, what is your first impression? Something that has nothing to do with you? Or maybe you wish you could become a martyr one day. A 17-year-old girl that I met once told me that her wish was to become a martyr and to die for Christ. Her eyes were telling me that she was not saying this in vain. She wanted to dedicate her whole life and even her death to Jesus wholeheartedly. When I stand before such a person, I feel a little embarrassed for my lack of courage and faith. However, not everyone has to feel this way. We all can become martyrs ourselves. I am not saying that we all must die. The dictionary defines the word martyr as a person who willingly suffers death rather than renounce her religion, or a person who is put to death or endures great suffering on behalf of any belief, principle, or cause. We are all familiar with this concept, although the Bible tells us that this is not the only definition of martyr. The original Greek word for martyr is martis, which means a witness. More specifically, it means a witness at a court who is obligated to tell only the truth about what he or she has seen. Therefore, being a martyr implies serving as a witness of God, who must speak only of truth, even if it puts him or her in danger. As God anointed the Israelites as his people, he presented the Israelites with the Ten Commandments and ordered them to keep them all. One of the Ten Commandments particularly forbids lying or false testimony. Exodus 20.16 states, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment clearly bans God's people from lying or giving false testimony, especially when it causes harm to neighbors. God hates false witnesses. On the other hand, God loves loyal witnesses. We are all God's witnesses as well as Jesus Christ's witnesses. We must be able to witness Him and His words anywhere and at any time. Even if it puts us at risk, we cannot deny what we have seen and heard. During the Japanese occupation in Korea during World War II, there was a pastor in Korea who only testified the true light of Jesus Christ that he had personally experienced 
even when his faith cost him his life. Let's now take a moment to hear the story of Pastor Ju Kichur. From 1910 to 1945, Korea was under Japanese rule. Jul Kichar became a pastor after experiencing the Holy Spirit in 1920 at a revival service at Moon Chang Church in Masan, headed by Pastor Kim Ik-do. In 1936, when Pastor Ju became the senior pastor of Sang Jong-hyun Church in Pyongyang, the Japanese regime began to pressure Christians in Korea to attend Shinto shrine worship. Japanese rulers persecuted Korean churches by arresting and torturing Korean Christians who refused to worship the emperor. Under the persecution, the Presbyterian Church of Korea announced at the 27th General Assembly that shrine worship was not a spiritual ceremony and therefore Korean churches could participate in the Shinto shrine worship. Such an announcement was equal to giving Christians permission to kneel down and worship the Japanese emperor. This was not acceptable to true believers. Pastor Ju and several other pastors refused to participate in the Shinto worship and stood strong against the swords and guns of Japanese occupiers. They continued to proclaim the voice of truth. Due to his resolution, Pastor Ju was arrested five times, spending five years and four months in prison from 1938 to 1944. While in prison, Pastor Ju was tortured in unimaginable ways. He was whipped, forced to walk on iron nails, and even hung upside down. While this series of extreme tortures debilitated Pastor Ju's physical body with eye disease, tuberculosis, and heart disease, his soul became healthier and healthier. Many witnesses remember Pastor Ju reading the Bible and giving thanks to God in peace while in prison. Right before his fifth arrest, Pastor Ju gave out his last sermon to his mother, wife, children, and 20 other church members. My Lord went through hardship and gave up his life on the cross for me, so how can I abandon my Lord due to fear of death? I am more than resolved to walk the path of suffering. A pine tree remains green only if it is axed before it dies, and a lily remains fragrant only if it drops before it withers. My body will be offered on the altar of God before it withers as well. After these last words, Pastor Ju was imprisoned in Pyongyang and returned to God at the age of 49 on April 21, 1944. Pastor Ju's last sermon, titled Resolution, asks us, How could we deny Christ due to fear of death when we know that Christ has laid down His own life on the cross for us? This is the stance of a martyr or a witness. A witness must testify what he or she has observed. Even when the situation seems unclear and dangerous, a true witness 
testifies what he or she has seen without hesitation. A true witness must fulfill his or her obligation to speak of truth and never deny what one has seen and heard, even if it may cost one's life. The words martyr and witness are synonyms. We are all witnesses of Christ. Although we never know if we will become martyrs, we know that we are called as witnesses. Even if you are afraid to be a martyr, do not give up on your role as a witness. We all must live up to our role as witnesses, and God will decide if and when we will serve as a martyr. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. When we stand strong to testify the truth that we have witnessed, the world is no longer worthy of us. This concludes this week's episode of Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
John Wycliffe had every desire to make sure the word was rightfully delivered to the people of England and created an opportunity for them to read the Bible. Although at the time it was prohibited for the distribution of the English Bible, Wycliffe's Bible was spread all throughout England, and as people read the Bible with their very own eyes, miraculous things began to happen. 
people began to realize what the living truth was, that the only way of salvation was Jesus Christ. People began to come alive in spirit. They began to break apart from the ways of old customs and doctrines and began to obey to the words of the Bible. Wycliffe preached boldly in the church, in the streets, and anywhere he could meet and find people. People's hearts began to change. What do we see in the image of ourselves? Reading the Bible has become so easy and obvious, but do we not have any desire to read and eat our daily bread? As the days are becoming more evil, we need to be more and more engaged in reading the Word. It should not become a customer habit, but we should deeply have the desire to know what it is that God asks of us. All of the revivals in the past began when people met God's words and began to know the truth that it revealed to them. Through the word, we realize that we are sinners, and when we truly realize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, is when a real revival begins. Here are the scriptures of Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5-9. through 9. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleah, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I hope that this next week, all of our listeners may be deeply engaged in the Bible, that we may directly hear His proclamations from His Word. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless.
Saints come.